This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to say, I know things are kind of intense and overwhelming right now, and I'm just thinking about you all. I hope you're all staying healthy, practicing social distancing, please remember that that's the way we flatten the curve. For today's episode, my hope is that as you stay home, if you are able, we can bring you a little bit of joy with work in progress. So on today's episode, we recently celebrated International Women's Day and today's guest is incredibly inspirational. I'm really excited to share her story with all of you during these stressful times because she is quite an example of what you can do when you are determined. Victoria Jackson is an activist on behalf of women's empowerment and entrepreneurship. And in 2017, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame by none other than work in progress guest, Gloria Steinem. She's here today to talk about her childhood, how her survival mode gave her the tools to do what she does now, a traumatic night that changed everything for her, what inspired her to attend beauty school and then begin a makeup empire, and how her daughter's rare autoimmune disease prompted her to switch gears and work to find a cure. She gives me such an incredible amount of hope at times like this, and I hope you all will learn so much from her. Victoria, I'm so excited that you're here with us today. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for coming. I want to get right into it. Uh, In 2017, you were inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame by another work-in-progress guest, the illustrious Gloria Steinem. And in 2018, you received the Pontifical Key Advocacy Award from the Pope. This is a pretty incredible time, and, and I just feel so honored to sit across from you 
you've had an incredible journey to get here. And, and before we get into where it is I meet you, I, I would love to go back a bit to the beginning. You've talked about how you were born three months early. How how did that impact your family early on? You know, I think, you know, and, and thank you. It's, it's really lovely to be here, Sophia. And honestly, even just mentioning what 2017 and 2018 looked like for me was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, and if somebody would have told me that, you know, I would have been inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame by Gloria Steinem, um, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. I remember just the day, you know, when I got a phone call that she had called and they said Gloria Steinem was on line one. That was shocking enough. So, <laughs> you know, I think how it all started for me was, you know, I, I have two wonderful parents, one who is not with us anymore, but they were young and I think not really prepared. And I always say I came three months early and I think it gave me a head start in, in being able to worry earlier, mm. you know, I was, so I think they weren't prepared in the sense that, you know, you have a child, they're in the hospital, they're not coming home with you. And I, I think it was just a challenge for them, mm. you know. How long did you have to stay in the NICU? I stayed in, in a little incubator for three months. Mm. And it's so funny because I still like the sound of a little hum when I sleep. So must have been, obviously got used to it. And I know that when I came home, my parents said, I never slept at night because, you know, I, I was born with like, I had these big brown eyes and a lot of hair and the nurses would, you know, just go, oh, she's so cute and keep me up all night. So when I finally came home, I think I was a little off schedule, and I think that even made it a little more challenging for my parents. But sure, yeah. Now I know that they divorced when you were nine, uh, after you'd moved from New York to Los Angeles. What was it like to to pick up and move cross country and deal with the dissolution of your family at that age? You know, you talk about obviously what you have going on from being a baby who's been in the hospital, what, what do you think, looking back now, the, the impact of that change was so early for you? You know, I think, you know, divorce for anybody and, and a big move. And at that point in time, my parents were so unsettled. It's hard for anybody. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, you you're sort of your whole life is uprooted. And as I said, I was always a very anxious kid. Mm -hmm. um, so I always felt a little... You know, movement wasn't my favorite thing. And, you know, when you're already sort of hardwired to be a little bit more anxious, you want that stability. So it was challenging. But at the same time, I was still young and coming to California was a new adventure. And we moved into an apartment in the valley when the valley still had orange groves wow. out in Panorama City. And so, you know, you sort of thinking about your embarking on a, a new life. Mm -hmm. What is the presentation of anxiety f for a kid? You know, you talk about it being hardwired for you. With the perspective you have now, what, what, what are you aware of Would you'd be hung up on as a little girl? You know, I think anxiety presents itself so differently for so many people. But mm -hmm. I think even as a young person, I just remember being six years old and just being really afraid Mm -hmm. You know, just feeling scared. And so that can just manifest in, mm -hmm. 
you know, how you're breathing and feeling sick to your stomach. And I think mm. mostly for me, it was in nausea. Mm. You know, I had a lot of just feeling sick. Yeah, that's really interesting. The sort of uh, the physical and somatic symptoms that you were aware of. Yeah. And you're just feeling a little more disoriented mm. and just not feeling solid, mm-hmm. you know. And my heart goes out to people that suffer with it. And I think when mm. you've had it your whole life, you really, you understand it in a way of, of how debilitating it can be yeah. and how extra hard you have to work to overcome how it presents. I want to get into that more with you later too. I'm so curious. What, what, where did your distractions come from? Where did all your joy come from as a kid? What, what were you into as a little girl? Um, you know, I grew up in a family where there wasn't a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always wish now, and I think as a mom, I love that I get to expose my kids to sports and to different activities, whether it's the luxury of, for them to learn how to ski and, and do things. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really have that. So we just sort of, you know, went out and were little happy explorers uh, in the valley, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of you know, getting into trouble here and there. But, you know, just trying to come to terms with, a family that's there's about to be divorce. My mom was starting to date. She ultimately mm. met actually from our first move to California. She met our next door neighbor in the apartment who ended up becoming my stepfather. Wow. And he had three children. So all of a sudden, very quickly, there was sort of now a new location and a new blended family. What was that experience like to suddenly have siblings? You know, it was interesting, and it's always made me really sort of rethink how we think about stepsisters, sister-brother. You know, when I would be sort of like, wait a minute, all of a sudden my mom is married the next-door neighbor, he has kids, and this is like a sister, Mm. you know. It, It was a little bit challenging. You know, all of a sudden you're trying to figure out how to integrate these new people into your life and the challenges that come with that. And so I I can't say it was the easiest of time. And I have different relationships to this day with my stepsisters and my sisters and brothers. And so it's definitely, we're all very different. Hmm. And when you think about, when you reference it, it makes you rethink how we identify siblings and the various ways they can show up in our lives. How do you think about that now? You know, I still think of it the same way. I mean, I'm, you know, family is your family, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, your friends are your friends, and then it's sort of where you come out with all of that at the end, you know, who you spend your time with. I think we came from, we, we had our different challenges as well as stepsisters and brothers because we had... You know, whether it was a stepmom or a stepdad, we had other factors that really shaped how we think. And we have a lot of trauma that we all went through in Mm -hmm. the family. So I think it's um, really sorted itself out differently for each one of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm closer with some, maybe not as much with others. But Mm -hmm. we all share a lot of experiences growing up, as, as we all do. Yeah. I think we're so lucky, all of us, to be alive at this point 
in history as complicated as it is, but one of the things I'm I'm so grateful for as a person who loves to research and who just likes to nerd out on mm-hmm. data and on these kinds of connections, you know, how we cohabitate, whether it's in family or community, neighborhoods, I'm I can't get enough of all of the recent research on trauma and on family systems and and on how it affects us and and how it presents in the body and and I think I think about it I think about what it was like as a kid going through my own versions of you know family stuff that created trauma for me and and how we didn't know so much of what we know now and I imagine because I'm not a parent and as I'm hearing you tell your story Mm -hmm. I imagine it must be such an incredible thing having your own versions of family history and trauma and, and all the things that we all have to be a parent in, in an era of so much research and so much information because we all get to do things so differently than our parents' generations did. Well, and so much, I mean, you could have the research and the information, but at the same time, you know, as you're growing up, you're just experiencing it. So you're not thinking about that. It's just, and for me, ultimately, it's all made me who I am today. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really realize how much I've always been in survival mode. Mm. As sort of, I just, I think I really did. As I said, I came out early, three months early to start my worrying and and go into my survival mode. But it it really ultimately has given me the tools Mm -hmm. to do the things that I'm doing now Mm. and think the way that I think. So as I'm watching my children, you know, I have three children and now two grandkids, I'm seeing how, you know, they're navigating it and Mm -hmm. how you're almost really a lot of ways, you're hardwired how you come in with your anxieties and sort of knowing where I can kind of step in and guide them and where I need to step back. And this is just going to be their process. But Mm -hmm. No matter how much data and information's out there, you're kind of going to go through what you go through. Yeah. Hmm. So you talk about how you love to go exploring and adventuring as a kid. Were you, as a young girl, into makeup? You know, I think the makeup, yes, was more of an escape for me because mm-hmm. as I was really, my adventuring was more to get me out of the house. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I loved being creative, and I didn't really know where I was going to land or what I was going to do. Um, you know, I was never like, oh, I'm going to be the doctor, the lawyer, the whatever. But I knew that I enjoyed playing with makeup. Mm. I really liked making over my friends, and I can't say that I really had great skills, but I early on always had a, a great eye. I, I sort of say now, and I was always really like good taste waiting for money to happen. Um, (laughs) I just always had a certain, you know, my dad was a wallpaper salesman. And early on, you know, the big treat was like, oh, you can pick the wallpaper, you Mm. know, for your bedroom or something. And early on, I was just always into design and decorating. And so makeup was just an extension of that. And Mm. I just enjoyed it. And I early on got a sense of how people started to feel better when they looked better. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting to me. And I wanted to help people just look better. My friends look better and feel better. And I enjoyed it. 
So were you doing more and more of these makeovers in your teenage years? Yeah, I was doing more and more makeovers. I was doing hair. I was, Mm -hmm. you know, I was trying to figure it out. I decided that I was going to, when I was out on my own, have to figure it out. So I would be doing, you know, working as we all do, the odd jobs as a waitress or Mm -hmm. whatever, and decided to uh, earn the money to put myself through beauty school, which was 1,600 hours of beauty school. My mom had money to send one child to college, and I had a younger sister that was really academic. And, you know, I was not interested in school at the time. As I said, I was always sort of maybe getting a little bit into mischief and Mm -hmm. missing school and, you know, not really paying attention to it due to a little bit more of the conflicts and and sort of, you know, not happy times at home. Mm. I know that you went to beauty school after you dropped out of high school. Yeah. And if it's okay to ask about the experience that led to that, when you talk about things that shape you so formatively, I imagine, as a woman, what Mm -hmm. you went through at 17 was a huge formative experience. Yeah. There was a serial rapist in Southern California. Yes, in the 70s. mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, I was always part of my anxiety. I was a really sort of scared kid, too. I always had this feeling like somebody was going to get me. So Mm. it was always sort of the joke in the house, like, who's going to get you? You know, nobody's going to get you. And there was one night where somebody did get me. And um, it was the pillowcase rapist in the 70s. He came and I say in the 70s because there's been a sort of, I don't know if you want to call it, unfortunately, as if the world needed two pillowcase rapists. Mm. There's been a, a recent uh, pillowcase rapist that like people will go, is that the same one? But the pillowcase rapist in the 70s, what he would do is, you know, he came in through, we had a cat door. Uh, it was like a dog door, actually, mm. where he kind of put his hands through it and unlocked the door and... I was the only one in the back of our apartment. It was actually here in West Hollywood. And he came in, and I thought it was my brother. I had an older brother, my stepbrother, who I thought because he was all dressed in ski mask and had a knife and all the awful things that you just see in the horror movies, you know, standing behind you. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't my brother. And mm-hmm. it was... and. You know, at that moment in time, I've, I mean, I learned a lot of things about myself. Number one, I thought, there's no way that I'm supposed to die right now. Like, I just remember thinking, I'm 17. I was six months from graduating high school. And mm-hmm. I just thought, there's no way I'm, it just, I, I just couldn't come to terms with that. And since I was in the back of the house, in the back of the, uh, our apartment, I thought he had already, you know, gotten the rest of my family, and I was the last one. Mm. So immediately that was, you know, my family's all gone. And then, you know, I'm really not going to go into any of the details, no, obviously, of, of the rape, but to say that, you know, it was violent. And I learned at that moment how I could go out of body in my mind. Mm. And really did and just thought about, you know, the most upsetting thing was my family 
And it turned out that I was the only victim, and they were asleep in the house. Mm. And so it was, of course, it was extremely traumatic. I never went back in my room again. I Mm. left the house. Shortly thereafter, you know, I got married (laughs) to, like, you know, a guy in high school that had been a friend, but I thought, I'm going to get married. I don't want to be by myself. And that was really... It was really, really hard. I didn't, I dropped out of school and I just decided that, you know, I'm going to figure out what I want to do. I was working lots of jobs here in LA and Hollywood and, as I said, waitressing and, you know, just working to make money and then mm-hmm. decided to go to, uh, to beauty school. But it, it definitely is a game changer. It left me with not only the anxiety that I already had, but claustrophobia, Mm. which was, you know, really, I still struggle with. I didn't fly for 37 years. I didn't even get on an airplane. So yeah, it was, it's definitely, you know, any woman who's been through that, you know, will tell you, obviously, it, it changes your life. But when I look back at it now, as a woman, the age that I am, and all that, you know, I've accomplished and done, you know, it was, it's all it's all part of it. You know, it's all right. part of knowing that one day I would be sitting on a couch talking to Sophia Bush and uh, telling my story and how you get to the other side. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I really appreciate your being willing to talk about what some of the effects are. You, you should never any I don't believe any victim should ever have to relive their trauma you know, and go into detail as, as you mentioned, but I do think it's probably so healing for some people who are listening at home, who've been through their version of that experience to say, oh yeah, I have this thing that stuck with me. I couldn't do X after my assault. I, you know, for whatever reason, so many women, I think for so long have been encouraged just not to talk about those things. Yeah. And we find such healing in community when we can recognize ourselves in other people's experiences. Yeah, and I, I think it's also encouraging what you can do to get beyond, mm-hmm. to go to that next place that, mm-hmm. you know, where you're not just stuck or as a mm-hmm. victim that you, you know. So mm-hmm. I've always been, as I said, I think those early years of always needing to be in survival mode, I go right into you know, okay, so now what are you going to do? Giving my time to grieve, Mm. you know, and process and therapy. Mm. Yeah. I like that, though. So now what? So now what? And and you're now what? You went into cosmetology school, and that that opened up a runway to change your whole life. Yeah. It helped me to figure out what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. You know, um, as you're doing, you know, makeup and you're – doing hair and all these, you know, beautiful little old ladies with blue hair, then you're trying to <laughs> not mess them up too much because, you know, you're you're figuring out and learning your craft. But it was a great experience. And I realized that doing sort of coming out of that, that the makeup portion was something that I enjoyed mm. and went on to, you know, work in department stores and go, okay, how am I going to, you know, really get better as a makeup artist because Mm -hmm. I had a great eye, but my skills needed some work. So 
I went on to working for Clinique in the department stores here in um. L.A. I remember in Bullock's Westwood. And, you know, just started working for different cosmetic companies as a makeup artist and perfecting my skills mm -hmm. and having the opportunity to work with all different products and, and seeing what was out there. And really seeing what worked and what you liked. Yeah. And trying to get women into, I would see so many women coming to the makeup counter and they were overly made up. Or I'd look at some of what the other artists were doing and they would just be just layering on the makeup. And I was like, no, um, I really have this eye of this more no makeup makeup. And that's where it really first started for me was in those department stores and looking at all the women that came in and also the, all the women that just didn't know how to do their own makeup. Right. When when you began as a makeup artist in a department store, how did how did you then wind up being a makeup artist working in advertising? Because you were doing ads, editorial, I mean, album yeah. covers, yes. working with actresses. How did the transition happen? Yeah, the transition went from, um, I was in a department store doing that for a while, and I thought, I really want to work for magazines. I want to do that. It looks mm. so glamorous to me, you know, just mm -hmm. editorial. And, you know, I saw, oh, the thought of, you know, doing the pages of Vogue and, you know, just looked exciting to me. So, I just decided, I'm. how do you get into doing that? You know, what do mm -hmm. you have to do? So basically what you had to do is I started to meet a lot of the photographers in town here in L.A. and offer to work for free to build a portfolio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully, you know, you're starting out. You're, I think my first job, it was crazy, it was for like Playgirl magazine, which was about as far from doing beauty makeup. It was doing <laughs> makeup on guys, you know, right. which, you know, in the 13-year career I had, I did, you know, over 200 album covers and People magazine covers and wow. ad campaigns for everything from different cigarette campaigns to Chippendales calendars to, I mean, you name it, movie ads. And, mm. you know, it was it was exciting. And... During that time, I realized as I'd been working in department stores and working with all different cosmetics, I never found anything that was really in a foundation that was really, mm. you know, great, perfect. Uh, everything in the, once you kind of crossed over into the world of beauty was more, you know, these pink tones and orange-based mm. uh, foundations. And so I thought, I'm going to start you know, making my own cosmetics and my own pots and pans. I would make up my own, you know, concoctions for whatever shoot that I was going to do. Wow. Yeah. And that was, that's when I started to see, okay, there's something here. I'm starting to make my own makeup. I really now want to start teaching people how to do this. Um, because I've always suffered from really, you know, with uh, mixed in with anxiety. Usually people that have anxiety, you're always sort of dealing with low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. So there was always this, hey, if I can do this, you can do this. You know, if I can sit and do this, you know, you can do this, and here's how. Mm. So I wanted to teach women how to do their own makeup and decided as I'm now working as a makeup artist, I'm making my own products, you know, how can I actually go about doing that? Mm -hmm. And I reached out to UCLA at the time. They were teaching an extension classes, but there was nothing in this area. And I said, can I 
do a class, a 10-week class on how to do your makeup for either, you know, teaching makeup artists to be makeup artists Mm -hmm. for film, for TV. And um, they said, sure. And I did that with really no experience other than a portfolio of work that I'd been amassing. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing that, teaching at UCLA for 10 years. Wow. Uh, A makeup course that would have about 50 students a quarter. You'd have guys as well as gals, and I think the guys were in there, quite frankly, to meet the gals because (laughs) they would be doing, you know, makeovers. Everybody would be sort of doing makeovers on each other. And it was really, that was a great experience for me because I could see that ultimately it, it went on to not only introduce me to a gal who was one of my students who told me about a group of guys that um, were doing infomercials that were just coming out in, this is late 80s now. Um, And she said, you know, I think they'd be interested in talking to you. And I said, well, you know what? I have come up with a great idea of how to sell cosmetics on TV, which I did not have at that moment, but I thought I'm going to come up with a great idea of how to (laughs) sell color cosmetics to women in this 30-minute sort of format, Mm. which ultimately was really my classes at UCLA. Mm. I did a how-to tape on teaching you how to do your makeup and created these peach, pink, and red color-coordinated kits that women would be able to very easily make their selection and went on to do infomercials. And that part of my life was uh, now entering into a whole other chapter. And that's really the birth of Victoria Jackson Cosmetics. That is Victoria Jackson Cosmetics, which everybody said you can't sell cosmetics on TV. You know, women need to see them and feel them and touch them. And I was like, no, I I can. I'm going to put these color-coordinated kits together where Mm -hmm. everything is in there, the blush, the eyeshadows, the foundation is the only thing you're going to need to pick which is going to be light, medium, tan, and dark. I did all of the visuals so that you could see exactly, you know, how it looked on the different skin tones. I had amazing celebrities in the beginning to be sitting with me on a couch, and uh, we would just talk about the products, and they were celebrities. My very first one was with Allie McGraw, and uh, she had been a client. And so people wanted to be involved, and it was very visual and made it fun. And the first week of sales, we did a million dollars a week in sales my very first week. I went on to doing over almost a billion dollars in sales over 13 years of 13 infomercials. And I created 600 beauty products. So it was quite an extraordinary um, experience. And at the time I was doing it, I also went on to do, I think before they were even doing, obviously, podcasts, I had my own radio show where they said, if you can do makeovers on the radio, (laughs) we'll give you the the airtime. So I was doing that. And everything was about really educating women. And I decided with this platform of being on television and doing this infomercial, Mm -hmm. what was really important to me. And... What really was important to me was that it wasn't about just I could teach women how to look better. I can tell you how to make your eyes bigger and your lips fuller. But what I cared about is now what are you going to do with that? 
you know, mm. I want you to go out and, you know, conquer the planet. And so my mission was really to be a goodwill ambassador for look better, feel better about yourself, go out and be the best version of yourself. Mm. And so I wrote a book early on called Redefining Beauty. And I felt like that was the how-to pieces were really important to me, but the why was more important to me, why it all mattered. And so I started to write another book called Make Up Your Life. And that was really inspired by, I decided during this period of time of infomercials was to start working and going to the prisons. And so I went to prison for uh, 20 years. I started at Civil Brand and Twin Towers downtown LA working with women. And 100 women at a time, which was an extraordinary experience of doing these makeovers in jail. And it was really what I then be, I would sort of, I talked after that about what I called the power of mascara, how I would see these extraordinary changes in these women where I would go in and I'd say, well, what do you like your makeup to say? And they'd go, we like our makeup to say pull over. (laughs) So, you know, a lot of women overdoing their makeup, sort of using it, you know, whether it's to, you know, working the streets or whatever. I was like, okay, how about another message? Like, how about one that look at me, respect me, I, because I respect myself, changing the whole energy of how they saw themselves. Mm. And I will tell you, going into the jails and seeing the transformations of women, as we would joke about, like all, you know, all made up with nowhere to go, but how their energies really, really changed when they would see themselves or maybe before I would, you know, walked in that day, girls, gals weren't maybe getting along, how all of a sudden the energy changed Mm. where everyone was supporting each other and they viewed themselves differently. It was sort of like off with the war paint and now, you know, just a new energy and self-respect. That's what kept me going back for 20 years, especially as a woman who, as I said, I'm very claustrophobic. Mm. Going into jails was really tough. Wow, Because you're... You're, uh, you're, you're in. You're in when they're in. Yeah, you can't just walk out if you're yeah. having a panic attack. Yeah. Something that comes to mind for me, and I'm so curious listening to your journey and, and the size and scope of it is so incredible. But you say that, you know, you were redefining these arenas. People were saying you can't sell makeup on TV. They, they had a lot to say to you, and you did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Did you have anyone that you could ask for business advice at the time? Did you have a mentor or were you doing this all just by your own kind of intuition and gut instinct? Yeah, yeah I definitely really sort of the, you know, uh, fake it till you make it, act as if, all this self-talk. I really mm. didn't have a mentor at the time. You know, I was really, I look back now and I think of the people that, you know, are in my life that really inspire me, mm. the glorious Steinem's. I had always at the time, really, I think if there was anybody at the time, you know, Oprah had her weekly shows Mm -hmm. and I wanted to, you know, be on the show. 
But as I was saying, I didn't travel for 37 years. Part of this claustrophobia was I really had a hard time, you know, having to be somewhere, you know, two days later if I had to fly, whatever. And I finally had this opportunity where I kept, you know, that manifesting that we do in our minds where I was like, I want to now that my infomercials are successful, I'm having the success, I'm becoming known as, you know, the queen of the, you know, infomercial makeup maven. I get a call to go on the Oprah show. And, you know, this is all very exciting. Mm. But I couldn't do it. I was too, like, I had to get to Chicago. And it was one of those where, you know, I had to be there fairly soon, and I just wasn't going to get there. And it's one of those things where you just sort of go, damn, (laughs) <laughs> you know, I I wished I would have done it, but I, I didn't. And I really beat myself up for it for a long time. And mm. it was going to be a platform where I was, you know, the lead into the show, which was of, you know, women that had sort of made it against the odds mm. and really more of my story. Because a lot of people look at my success now and I speak to, you know, success in the way, you know, how you can do it if you didn't go to the Wharton School of Business. Yes. You know, how can you be successful when you're really just your own driving force? And even when I'm lecturing now, if I'm doing something at, you know, Anderson School of Business at UCLA or at the Marshall School at USC, I'm talking about, you know, what are you going to do when these things in life come up that, you know, are the game changers Mm -hmm. and... How are you going to handle it and how do you move forward and, you know, how really trying to empower women that, again, that, hey, if I did it, you could do it. And and here's how. Here's my experience. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. What did, because we're looking at the overview of how this all took off and it's kind of like a rocket ship. What did it feel like the very first time you did your first infomercial? And are you are those being taped and then they're airing as segments, or is it live like a home shopping thing? Um, how how did it go? So it's taped. Okay. And you have to remember again with that like nasty self esteem issue creeping up. At this point, I'd always been the makeup artist behind Mm. the scenes. Mm. So now I have to get in front of the camera and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not pretty enough. I I don't think Mm. I can do this. And I'm not really sure that I I look like what would a CEO of a company, Mm -hmm. you know, cosmetic company look like and say. And so I remember the day so well and I get to the studio and I'm, feeling very nervous and insecure and they had hired a gentleman a cinematographer who's going to be doing all the photography and he was a frenchman who came he says to me he goes oh victoria it's lovely to meet you and he says you know i have photographed the most beautiful women in the world and there are two types of women there's women with great beauty and women with great brains and you are a woman with great brains (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And I just remember going, oh, my gosh. And we're now standing with a group of, you know, people, the producer and, you know, the people that are all there. And they already know I'm feeling rather fragile. And I was just like, oh, great. And um, 
that moment was just sort of in a way that was so liberating because I'm thinking in my mind, oh my gosh, did he just call me a dog? Like, what's happening? And he says, so we're going to put you outside, we're going to get you some air, and we're going to just, you know, it's all going to be great. And I just remember going, oh, okay. And it was sort of like, at that point, I just said to myself, Victoria, you're just going to, when you shoot this, you're just going to go in there and just like, go for it. Because... It had already broken down that wall of all of that, you know. So there was that moment of, okay, so what are you going to do, you know? And Um, I just decided. And I went in there, and I gave it my all, and I'd never been in front of the camera, really. And I just also, what was very easy, I created all those products, and I knew that they were great products. So it wasn't like doing any hard sell. I think that's the part that was you know, ultimately challenging about how infomercials got a bad rap Mm -hmm. because it was, for me, it was really easy. It was like, ladies, this stuff works. You got to try it. If you don't like it, send it back, you know, but just try. Mm -hmm. And I was showing them in demonstrations that you only need this little bit and look what it does. So Mm -hmm. it was very organic and very authentic Mm -hmm. and real for me. So, And when the sales take off... Because you've been making this stuff, you said, at home. Mm-hmm. You know, you were making and formulating your own cosmetics. What is it like to have to get a production house? How how do you go about doing that? Figuring out who can make these formulas for you and how to get them packaged and shipped. I mean, it just feels so overwhelming. Yeah. It, <laughs> no, it is. I mean, that's why my first connection was to, you know, seeking out like the best cosmetic chemist Mm. to help me take what I had created in my garage and my little pots and pans Mm -hmm. and turn it into something that now you're selling and is safe and clinically tested and Mm -hmm. all those kinds of things. So I was really, I was learning as I was going. Um, I learned about manufacturing. I learned about, you know, how I wanted, I was in it in every single way, how everything had to feel how, Mm. you know, and my philosophy uh, was this no makeup makeup. Mm. So everything really had to represent that, not only in how I was teaching it, but in what you were ultimately going to see. So that Mm. was in making sure that, you know, eyeshadows had just the right amount of payoff of color, but, you know, knowing that women might tend to use a little bit more than less, how to make everything really reflect my philosophy. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of research. It was a lot of meeting people and ultimately put together, which was a really, really solid product line. So mm. you basically do an infomercial, you test it, and then when you see the results, you we pulled back and you gear up to then be selling a million dollars worth of product a week, which was ultimately, in the heyday of infomercials, 22,000 new customers a week wow. that I would have. So it was quite extraordinary just to see that and watch the wow. building of of what ultimately became that beauty empire. If there was something that you could have known when you were starting out, in hindsight, what, what do you think that would have been? I think the hardest things even then, it's, you know, you have to sometimes you're going to make a deal that maybe isn't going to be the best, you know, when you're starting out as a makeup artist in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Sometimes the people you're getting in business with, you know, I wish that I maybe had a little bit more people that were familiar with infomercials in my earliest 
you know, negotiations that I may have made some better deals for myself. But ultimately, you know what, the people that I was in business with, they were very generous in that they took a leap of faith Mm. in me. So I think it all played out the way it was supposed to. I I think everybody told me it was never going to happen. You're not going to be able to compete with the Revlons and the Lancomes and the, Mm. you know, on and on and on. So I'm glad that I didn't listen to them and that I just step by step and, you know, every piece led ultimately to that success. Mm. Even my students were the test market for the products that mm. I would sell more local to them that I could always be testing and seeing. So so you can imagine the transformation or the transition, I should say. There were all the transformations in the makeup world, but now I had to, to go from, like, transformation to a, a whole different transition Yeah, from the power of mascara to uh, the power of medicine. <laughs> it's so cool. What do you think, because I'm sure there's so many people at home listening right now who are so inspired, who have ideas for businesses and things they want to create. What would you say are the three most important things for listeners to plan for when they are looking to start a business? I think you have to you have to really research obviously what the business is that you're going into. Mm-hmm. You have to be prepared for all the people that are going to tell you why it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So if you're not a person who can sort of weather that, mm-hmm. like don't even try because you have, you know, you have to have that real I'm doing it no matter what and here's how. So like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm the kind of person that well, if it doesn't work you know, walking straight ahead, then, you know, I'll like come in sideways or come up from the floor or down from the ceiling or Mm -hmm. whichever way I have to problem solve. So you have to be a problem solver. You have to be somebody who can persevere and figure your way out. I mean, you just have to, and I'm not even necessarily a real positive person. You know, I can really deal with all my own insecurities and fears Mm. and all that but you've just got to find whatever way that works for you for me it was the act as if fake it till you make it and create a visualization Mm. I saw myself always you know in the place in the space the way I wanted it to be I would just always manifest that I'm a seeker I always have been I'd always be reading whatever book inspired me. So all Mm. of those things, you have to take all those little bits and talk to all different people uh, and just take it all in. And then you have to rely on your your intuition and your gut. I love, there's a thing that you talk about and you just touched on it about fear. And you, you've spoken a lot about how fear has really been a constant in your life. But instead of letting it paralyze you, you've really used it. You've learned how to not let it stand in your way. And and it almost strikes me that that you've managed to turn fear into fuel. And I'm curious about how you've taught yourself to do that, how you've figured out how to do it anyway. You know, it's really by having to do it Mm. and, you know, I was listening to, I recently went to, I go to 
you know, whether different seminars. And I did a Tony Robbins thing, and, you know, he mm-hmm. was saying something about fear, and it's like, fuck everything and run, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, you know, for me, it's always been right on my shoulder. And Gavin De Becker, even, there's a book called The Gift of Fear. I don't know if you've heard it, but for me... It was an important book that I read somewhere along the way where it's how, you know, you always get a sense of where I said early on, you know, I always felt like somebody was going to come and get me, and then they ultimately Mm -hmm. did, that there's something that how to take this fear and harness it into something positive. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like the gift of fear is an early version of like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, you know. Mm -hmm just always being really intuitive. So I just try to to harness that. And there's times I'm able to walk through the fear, times where, you know, in obviously the world I'm in now, it's riddled with fear with mm-hmm. my daughter's condition and yeah. what I was told, you know, which was the game changer in my life when uh, I was told that she had four years to live. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't breathe. Mm. I mean, it was if a person who is, you know, sort of hardwired for anxiety was given, you know, just fear served up, you know, in capital letters on a platter, Mm -hmm. in your face. um, Terror, I imagine. You know, wanting to do everything, fuck everything and run and, Mm. and had to stand there and now deal and make a plan. It was 2008. When Allie was diagnosed? Yes. And at the time, you were still running the beauty business, right? Yes. And I imagine when you've built a billion-dollar empire, you you never foresee that you're going to leave it behind. Right. But when your daughter got sick, you said, done with the business, everything everything in life now changes, everything is is now going to focus on figuring out how to get her well? Was that? Yeah, it really does. It's amazing, too, as a mom. It was really like the book on mascara closed, and I opened uh, the book on medicine. Mm. And now you have to remember, I'm, I have three beautiful children. Mm. Um, my daughter was, we're out, we're about to be, we're driving, we're going to a premiere of a friend of mine. And she starts saying she has an eyeball headache, sort of this, like, my eyeball's hurting. It's weird. I don't know how to explain it, Mom. And oh. I'm starting to, you know, lose some some vision. And, you know, I, I feel like everything's blurry. And I'm thinking maybe she has an eye infection or something. So we go to, to you know, a doctor the next day and looks at her eyes and dilates her eyes and says, you know, she has an inflamed optic nerve, looks like optic neuritis, we need to go to the next doctor, the the next more advanced neuro-ophthalmologist to see what's going on. And basically he sees the same thing, seems this optic nerve. He says, now, you know, we need, she's going to need to go to a neurologist. And this is all happening very fast. And, you know, I've, you know, my other kids, and including her, she's never been sick. Mm. Sort of like, you know, why would I need to go to a neurologist? I don't mm-hmm. understand. And he basically, I go to this neurologist, and he says, we're going to need to do a lumbar puncture. And, you know, now I'm like, a lumbar puncture? Why, you know, she's got an eye thing going here. Why are we doing that? 
And so we didn't do that. And he said, well, let's just do a series of blood tests and exams. And he starts checking boxes for the lab slip for the blood test. And one of the um, boxes he's checking is something called NMO, neuromyelitis optica. And as I'm looking at the slip, I go, so what's that? And he goes, oh, that's, you know, don't even worry about that. He goes, I don't even know why I checked that. You know, if she had that, that would be a nightmare. Don't even think about that. And the labs go off. And meanwhile, Allie is still, you know, she's 13. She's not really wanting to pay attention to all of this. You know, she just wants to figure out what's wrong. And basically the lab comes back and she has what he was saying was going to be a nightmare, which was NMO, which at the time was known as Devic's disease, uh, neuromyelitis optica now, and says, well, you're going to need to get yourself to the Mayo Clinic right away. And I'm like, wow, the Mayo Clinic, I'm okay. And here's the doctor you need to see. And he gave me the name of the doctor, which was a Dr. Brian Weinschenker at the Mayo Clinic, who was the only person that was seeing anybody in the world who had this. And we're off to the Mayo Clinic, where Allie early on was very, very clear with me that she didn't want to know what she had. She just said, Mom, I know you. You'll figure this out. And we're off to the Mayo Clinic, where this diagnosis was confirmed. And they told me that within the next few months, she would probably have another attack and she would become paralyzed and she might be gone within the next four years. How does something going on with the optic nerve relate to this diagnosis and potential paralysis? What? How does NMO work in the so body? The way it works is, you know, autoimmune disease is something that actually, you know, the world wide health organization says in 2035 is going to be the number one killer, and especially in women, seven to 10 women, we have this autoimmune diseases, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. uh, MS, uh, NMO. NMO presents a lot like MS. So most NMO patients, uh-huh. 95% of them have been misdiagnosed with MS. But how this presents in NMO is our body is attacking something called AQP4, aquaporin-4. And without getting too technical, it's a water channel Mm. that we all have in our body, and it attacks myelin. And myelin is along the optic nerve, and it's the spinal cord. So you have these completely random attacks that you don't know what it is that can trigger it because in autoimmune disease, you don't know what it is that triggers things. Is it diet? Is it stress? Is it, Mm. you know, hormones? Is it, you know, environmental? Is it vaccines? There's so many pieces to it. Mm. Um, So, you know, even to this day, that's what we sort of live with in Allie's condition is that you don't know when an attack is coming. Mm -hmm. So at the time when he first told me, probably within the next three months this would happen, I was very much, no, it's, I, you know, I think this isn't going to happen. And, you know, you kind of go into that, and, you know, denial. And, you know, basically they sent us home with, you know, let's keep in touch. Let's, she goes on a steroid taper of, you know, prednisone and things like that. And um, we sort of, you know, just think about it. But sure enough, within the next I think it was three to six months, she had an attack that affected her spinal cord. And 
you know, I can only tell you to watch your child go through that kind of excruciating pain where it's almost mm-hmm. electrical pain where you, you know, there's no painkiller that you're taking. It's really, really, it, it, it's, as a parent, it's horrifying. And not knowing, we're still working under the premise that, oh, my gosh, she, you know, she's got four years. And think about how insane it is as a parent. You're thinking, now, how am I going to cram? Do I, is this really so, like, am I really going to lose my child? Like, how do I cram four years of life into, you know, my child? And I started to not sleep at mm. night. So now I go into, like, sleep deprivation sort of, like, mode where you're trying to go, okay. And I reached back out now that she's had this attack to the Mayo Clinic. They're involved. And i asked the doctor if he's doing any research. And I said, is there any research going on that you're doing? And he says, I'm doing some. And I go, well, okay, well, my daughter has this. I'm a mom, truly, you know, beyond on a mission. And I've got a checkbook. So you and I are going to be working together, and I'm going to cure this motherfucker. So (laughs) that's pretty much what I said. And that was from that moment on, that's all I've been doing. And so was it that phone call that established the Guthy Jackson Charitable Foundation yes. to fund the research? Yes. And that's exactly when it started. So again, you've you've created one enormous business, and now you're creating an enormous charitable fund. How does one go about starting a foundation, especially when you feel like you're on the clock to do it? Well, starting the foundation was almost, you know, sort of secondary to the fact that how do I learn enough to run a foundation? Mm -hmm. Like, basically, I'm going, yeah, sure. I mean, I made lip gloss, right? I can cure a disease. Was really, how am I going to learn enough about what's going on? Mm -hmm. Who in the world is even studying this besides this one doctor, gentleman I'm talking to at the Mayo Clinic? How am I going to put together this, you know, this group of people and get this brain trust that I need in the world to help me, you know, cure this disease. So I went to Stanford Medical. Uh, Somebody uh, introduced me to a professor there, and I met with him, and I said, I need to learn everything about this. He was in molecular medicine. Mm -hmm. And I said, I need to learn everything about this condition. I need to learn everything to figure out who the people are in this space that Mm -hmm. would even be interested in working in this. So MS was obviously what most patients were diagnosed at the time. I didn't even, there was no other patient that I even knew at all. Uh, Allie was the only patient I could even find. So since then, through my work, I will say there's 500,000 patients worldwide that have this. So uh, the work I've done is, is changed the whole landscape of how we look at MS now and NMO. But it was literally one foot in front of the other uh, and putting together a group of doctors, nurses, researchers, scientists, anybody that would talk to me and was working in this space. And my problem solving in the way I think about things and when you have a child where you, as you said, is you're on the clock now. You run things very differently mm-hmm. um, when you know it's life and death 
when you know it's your child, when you know there's a timeline. Uh, you just don't take a lot of shit. You mm. know that the only way you're going to cure something is people are going to have to collaborate. They're going to have to work together. They're going to have to share information. Like these were all basic common sense things to me, mm-hmm. which I found out, you know, while I was doing it, that these were very rare things in the world of medical research, that people worked independently. They didn't really share information. They worked in silos. They didn't publish together. Mm. So I was like, well, this is going to be my money, my way. And um, that's that was really from day one. We're all going to work together mm. to cure this. And these are sort of the rules of the road. How long did it take you to find everyone to put on the team? That feels daunting to me to try, to your point, to find researchers and nurses and labs. How, how does that begin to happen? Uh, well, when you start in the very, you know, when I look back now at my very early days going back, I've now been doing this for 12 years. I'm mm-hmm. about to have uh, my 12th conference. My first gathering really was, you know, there was like six doctors in the room. And it would be talking to one doctor who'd put me in touch with somebody else who might put me in touch with a lab. And you realize as I was studying the science that I would have to come at it in many different ways. So Mm. ultimately knowing what the goal being that I have to cure this and I am going to ultimately need to have amassed enough science to engage pharmaceutical companies to help me, you know, come up with a cure. So... It was just putting the right people together in the room early on. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that 12 years later, I still have some of those same people in the room. I now deal with over 35 countries and over 200 researchers and scientists worldwide. I do a yearly conference that started with those six people that has grown every year with more and more people in the world, around the world, that are, you know, specialists in T cells and B cells and all different kind of specialties in the world of MS, lupus that come together and more and more have seen how I've created a model in which of how people work together to actually cure disease. Mm -hmm. And I knew that doing that to get what I said earlier is I needed this brain trust in the room to cure it was I needed to get them to them through really my heart Mm. and my personal story. And knowing that I had no agenda, not owning anybody's intellectual properties, not, you know, financially benefiting in any way, so that I would just have to have them see me, my heart, my intention, which I believe through the power of love and intention, you know, anything's possible, Mm. and hear my story so My daughter and I, early on, as I said, it wasn't until she was 16 that she saw a piece of paper that said something with the words NMO on it. And she said, is this what I have? And I said, yes. Up until that time, she didn't know. And you can only imagine as a parent, her dad and I thinking she has four years to live. She thinks she's like fine and, you know, she's just struggling with this eye thing and this back pain. And we're trying to figure out, you know, I'm thinking, 
you know, oh my gosh, you know, this will be the only prom dress, you know, she, it's got to be amazing because, you know, I mean, just all the crazy thinking that, you know, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, she's 15, but maybe I should let her drink <laughs> because right. she won't be around to drink, you know, just craziness. But while I'm doing it, we decide to write a book called Saving Each Other that comes mm. out, I think it was by now by the time she's 18, that really looking back at it, I didn't even know all the things that she was thinking of because we wrote our book separately and our pages were put together mm. after after we were both finished. And it wasn't until that book came out that I really realized how she was going through it. And even to this day, she's been pretty much like, Mom, I love you. I'm going to live my life. I'll be there to support and help you and help patients as I can. But, And she's also responsible for early on, she said, when she learned what she had, she said, this isn't just about you and I anymore. It's about everybody that has this. Hmm. And that's really how we've been a partnership, you know, ever since that day. So cool. How How is Allie doing? Allie's doing great. Allie says I have NMO more than she does. And I wow. will tell you that she's my hero because even when she has attacks, she, you know, it's frightening. But she has gone on to, she just lives her life. You know, she's a law student. Mm -hmm. She's a business, she's in business school now as well. I mean, she just goes on. She was president uh, when she went to UC Santa Barbara. She was president of the student body. I mean, wow. and people not even knowing, not telling other students or friends what she has. And um, she might never even listen to this <laughs> podcast because <laughs> she won't be, you know, you know, talking about it or living her life that way, mm. um, which is extraordinary. Uh, it, it really showed me how having a positive attitude as well. She's clearly we're beyond our four years, and I've made huge, huge progress. Wow. There's now a pharmaceutical. Is it being tested or is it on the market to yeah. treat patients with NMO? I have my first drug has actually now been tested. It's in phase four, which is it's on the market. Wow. And I have two more that will probably be out this year. The FDA is looking at the foundation and really what I've created as a model for how you go about curing disease. Mm -hmm. And... You know, that's just, and so, and we have all new technologies of different companies looking at it. Mm -hmm. And where, you know, the space of medicine now, there's a lot, there's a lot on the horizon. Mm -hmm. I will have to say along the way, I also had to create my own biorepository, my own blood bank. Wow. So I now have over 110,000 specimens from patients all around the world in uh, my blood bank because you realize when you're doing in the world of research that you have to have material that people are going to research. So I very systematically thought of all the things that you're going to, every time there was a new obstacle of people going, well, we need samples from patients, I'd go, okay, great. Well, I'm going to start my own blood bank. <laughs> having no idea, having done any of these things before, wow. If anything that I would hope people getting out of this podcast is that 
if you can go from truly like foundation, making foundation, like a base color foundation, mm-hmm. color cosmetics, to this kind of foundation where you're creating a you know blood bank and a consortium of doctors around the world to cure a disease, you know, there's really nothing you can't do when you put your mm-hmm. mind to it. I love that. God, it's just, it's so cool. <laughs> My brain is overwhelmed <laughs> in the best way. When you talk about bringing drugs to market to treat this disease mm-hmm. and the speed at which you've been able to do that, what stands out to me in what you were saying earlier is that in most arenas of academia and research, everyone works in a silo and there's no cross-communication, there's no cross-publishing. You took the silos away. Yes. Getting everyone working in cohort across all these different verticals and essentially functioning like a team rather than a bunch of individuals working on the same problem. Do you think that that's why you've been able to make advances in so much less time than so many other research organizations? Yes, very much so. Mm. And because, you know, in this, we are really the home of NMO. There is no other uh, Mm -hmm. research foundation that's out there. So people knew, and Mm -hmm. doctors, and, and I would fly doctors in from all over the world. I built this organically in that when I would have the seven doctors start in the room, I'd go, tell me who else you need to be here. Do you need Mm -hmm. a specialist in astrocytes? Do you need the B cell, you know, person that you've always wanted to talk to at the Cleveland Clinic? Like, who is it? Mm. And so they were all a part of building the team. And then it was always, everyone's now going to have to publish together. So Mm. we attacked it into, and we would form, there would be different working groups within the doctors. So somebody would be working on NMO and pregnancy, Mm. uh, pediatric NMO, like all these different groups. And everyone had to work together. You weren't funded unless you were working with another group. So... Mm. You would see, you know, maybe Oxford is working with the Mayo Clinic. Maybe Harvard is working with Stanford or organizations that wouldn't even, and then the littler, the smaller uh, clinics as well, would work together. Mm -hmm. And I always believed in bringing people together. Even when I was building my blood bank, I was doing crazy things where I was saying to patients, you know, give your blood, get a blush. I was bringing in (laughs) my old... Life, you creatively mm. thinking however I could. That part of me that thinks, you know, okay, how do I start building a blood bank? Um, and bringing together every year, which has been key, these conferences that mm-hmm. I do, where I bring everybody together in the room. And then on the last day, I fly in 400 patients and their wow. families. And not only would they be giving blood at that time, they would have access, and they still do. I'm doing my next one in March at UCLA. They have access to the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, Harvard. The docs are there to meet with them and talk to them. And Mm -hmm. by building this patient population as well, then you would have the pharmaceutical companies started taking a look at it going, There's all these patients. And then I had to show pharmaceutical companies. I did presentations on how they can make money. I mean, it'd be nice to just have them want to do it because they're nice guys. But by the way, you know, there's there's good intentions there, but you have to show people, like, how does it benefit them as well? Yeah. So it was always 
thinking of what do I need to do to get me where I want to go, which is find a cure. And that's that's just the guiding light. Um, I'm, it's incredible. That's just where my focus goes. What an amazing thing for you to choose to do with what the first iteration of your life allowed you to create. You know, we're in a time now where there's such debate around the very few people who've been able to make billions in industry who don't take responsibility for their employees, for healthcare, for really helping to give back from their success into society in meaningful ways. And you shuttered your business to literally just fund this research. You've been spending 12 years putting the money that you made into these arenas to push medicine forward, to create change in pharmaceutical companies. Why, why do you think more people who've had the kind of success that you had, your self-made success, haven't done work like this? Are they just not personally affected? I think obviously being, you know, listen, if somebody would have told me I'd be curing a rare disease in my life doing this work, would I have believed that or would I have all of a sudden decided, hey, I'm going to do that? I mean, clearly, you know, there was a clock ticking. I have a child who has it. I see it. And then when you're exposed to now, when I do my conferences and I fly all the patients in around the world, I see the look in the eyes of all the other moms Mm -hmm. and dads and, you know, the young kids that come and are just holding me or want to just see Allie to see how Allie's doing. Mm -hmm. Um, We've done conferences, you know, I just did it. We did a conference in Mali in Africa. We've done one on the Ivory Coast. We've done in Moscow, I mean, mm-hmm. around the world. And I think to answer your question, I mean, what's hard for me is when I hear, whether it's certain politicians now that, you know, they talk about, you know, the wealthy and the billionaires, and we're not bad people. Like we, I'm self-made, you know, my husband mm-hmm. and I, we're very lucky, but we're, we're self-made. We're two people who, um, my husband is Bill Guthy of Guthy Ranker. We're very mm-hmm. fortunate, but we didn't have anything. We started off together. We didn't mm-hmm. have money, and we've spent $70 million of our own money on this to help mm-hmm. people all around the world and to set an example. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard sometimes to hear people say, well, the wealthy. I think there's amazing things you can do in the private sector or anywhere mm-hmm. in life if you use your money for good and organize your thinking in a way that you're benefiting a lot of people. And I'm very, I'm very, I think both things that I've been involved with, infomercials, supposedly being, you know, wealthy, you get this sort of bad rap. And you know what? I've really always had nothing but the best of intentions to whether when I was doing my makeup to help women look and feel better about themselves. Mm-hmm. And now I just want to cure people of this, you know, this horrible condition. Yeah. Well, and what I will say is I wish that there were more people in your position who thought about it in the way that you did. I think that there's a reason, you know, when when we see a documentary like the Panama Papers and we see how so many people who do make it big in that way, and there are so few— you know, how they funnel money out of the country or evade taxes or, you know, and look, I, 
I think Amazon has changed the world and done a lot of good things for a lot of people, but also it's hard to know that Amazon employees don't get paid living wages and don't have health care. You are, I believe, in, in that sort of upper echelon of people who've made these enormous, you know, successes, success stories for themselves. You, you should be the model. <laughs> that, that's how I feel about it. I, I, think, I think it's an incredible thing to be self-made in my own right as a person in entertainment. I am. I didn't have a leg right. up anywhere. Right. You know, I made a career. But when I think about making it to that percentile of a percentile of, you know, the super wealthy, I, you're the, there's a reason that you're the billionaire who's coming <laughs> on my show. And I wish that we could use you as a test case for every other person who's, who's made something so substantial and say, do it this way. You know, if you're worth a billion dollars, are you going to commit 10% of your money you know, and more, I'm sure, behind the scenes right. past what you've talked mm -hmm. to us about, about this $70 million invested here. Like, are you really going to come in and commit? Because there's also a reality that there's a cost to these things. People forget that if you, you know, you have a company worth a billion dollars, well, there's a lot of costs to paying yes. your employees and paying for formulation and having, I get that. But again, I, I, I want people, I want people to take a page from your book. Well, thank you. Well, I and I just wrote the book called The Power of Rare, mm. which is a blueprint for a medical revolution, wow. which people asking me, how did you do what you did? How mm -hmm. do you do it? it? Again, in that same vein of just wanting to, you know, educate and say, if I did it, you did it. Mm -hmm. Here's how. So the book really is the blueprint of the power of rare, of how wow. you can do this. And Honestly, what I was standing when I was at the Vatican, which took everything for me to get there because, as I've said, I don't like to fly. Yeah. But, you know, hey, it's the Pope. To stand there and watch them show clips of my infomercial, which was so surreal in itself, <laughs> you know, to see some of your infomercial playing at the Vatican. Yeah. But to just to be acknowledged in that way, because I am mm -hmm. somebody who just puts my head down and do the work, mm -hmm. um, and whether it's Gloria Steinem standing there giving me that award, it's all been I I extraordinary. I mean, I I had the privilege of, you know, you talked about 2017 and 18, but mm -hmm. 2019 this year I inducted our Supreme Court Justice, uh, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And wow. I think of all the things that this has led uh, where I the places it's taken me, mm -hmm. but if anything, it's it's what you're saying, Sophia. I want to just if I can just lead by example mm -hmm. and have people see what you can do, because when people still say to me, "Did you ever think that doing this is going to now make a difference in the world of MS or mm -hmm. in lupus and changing yes. how we look at research and how things are done?" You know. As the little makeup artist who wasn't sure and didn't graduate high school and didn't go to college, I didn't I didn't expect any of that. But mm -hmm. all I know is what I did is I put my head down, I did the work, and I just want to be helpful. And mm -hmm. honestly, I wanted to save my daughter. And I do truly believe with the power of love and intention, there's nothing you can't do in this world. I love that. Do you have plans to go after more diseases? Uh, my husband asks me that 
from time to time. I'll go, so what are you <laughs> going to do now that you're, you know, you're curing this? Um, I have been approached, um, you know, the world of autoimmune disease, as I said, mm-hmm. is going to be our, it, it already is, our far surpass cancer uh, yeah. is, you know, how can what I've done help uh, affect and look at and the landscape of autoimmune disease? So I'm looking at that because people go, it'd be a shame all the work that you've done and all the connectivity and you know, I work with uh, Verily Life Sciences at Google. I have a lot of, you know, I work with a lot of different pharmaceutical companies. And I really do like being even w- with the FDA now, being that bridge between patients, mm-hmm. you know, advocating for them and also working with these pharmaceutical companies. Because mm-hmm. you really, you can't make any one person the enemy or you just aren't going to get there. Yep. So I really am very good at building bridges and just keeping that communication going. So if I can take what I've learned and what I've done and the resources that I have, I probably will go on. But I should also say that I'm, uh, I won't say who, but I'm also dabbling (laughs) back in the world of of beauty and uh, doing some things that, you know, I enjoy doing and will be doing for some other people. That's coming out with exciting. their own their own products. So very exciting. There's a lot on the horizon for you. There's a lot on the horizon. And as I said, I've got two other children that I love mm-hmm. and adore, two boys. And um, one is uh, an aspiring singer songwriter and the other is uh, a wonderful dad uh, living in Portland with now two two grandkids that I mm-hmm. have. So I have a wonderful family. And um, I'm excited to, you know, just have some some time with them mm. because a mission like this takes up a lot of your time. I imagine. So my last question for you that I ask everyone, the podcast is called Work in Progress. And I'm curious when you hear the phrase, what comes up for you as a work in progress in your life? Gosh, I mean, that's so <laughs> spot on for me because I always look at I'm a work in progress. And... Um, I don't think I've ever been anybody to sit back and go, oh, yeah, I'm there. So, Mm. you know, part of that me that's seeking and searching will continue to do that. Mm -hmm. But I I hope to do it with a little less burden and a little less heavy heart and a little freer in spirit sooner than later. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Brilliant Anatomy.